This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Morning, this is Bennett Kelly. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. We're broadcasting live, as usual, from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica. And if you want information on today's show, check out our blog, which is at um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And uh, we have profiles and additional information. In addition, check us out on Twitter at CyberLawRadio. So today we're going to be talking about a major story that was actually broke by a blogger a lawyer um, named Ken White, uh, more commonly known to the world as Popat, and he's been on our show several times, and we're thrilled to have him back. Ken, are you with us? I am. Thank you for having me, Bennett. Great to have you back. Now, just um, to, a quick trip through memory lane. Our, our first discussion um, we had several years ago was about the whole funny junk controversy when Charles Carrion uh, threatened to sue uh, The Oatmeal, uh, a famous uh, webcomic, and that went on for quite a while. Yeah, it, it kind of, I, I was reminded of, of it a, a little bit after that. Um, there was some public feud between the then mayor of Newark, who's now in the U.S. Senate, the guy from, the guy who, were, oh, what's his name? Conan O'Brien. Thank right. you. And, uh, you know, they got into this public spat, and at one point, the, the mayor said, you know, you're no longer welcome in Newark. You know, like, like that's a big sanction. Conan O'Brien came with the ultimate comeback, that, which said, I will, I will get to Newark the same way everyone else does through a series of very bad choices. <laughs> and it, it, it just reminds you, there are certain people you don't get into feuds with. One of them is a comic. This story has a little more gravity 
than someone trying to um, draw a, a comic drawing of someone's mother being defiled by a Kodiak bear. Um, <laughs> it's a funny junk. This actually involved a, a, a very serious story involving a Justice Department investigation into, um, I, I guess it was threats made against a judge and a subpoena to Reason Magazine that included a gag order. Why don't you we talk a little bit about what was the investigation that was going on? Sure. Uh, but this all starts with the prosecution of a figure involved in what was called Silk Road, a website where you could buy anything, mostly drugs and illicit services. And a guy named Ross Albrecht was federally prosecuted and convicted of being the figure called the Dread Pirate Roberts, the person who ran. When he was sentenced, the judge, the federal judge who sentenced him, said some very harsh things, sentenced him to life, and pretty much made a full-throated defense of the drug war and of the harsh sentences under the drug war. Reason Online, uh, the hit-and-run, the blog associated with Reason Magazine, did a post about this. And in the comments to that post, the Reason commenters, the people who frequently hang out there and talk about politics and libertarianism, said the sort of things people say on the Internet. They said some intemperate things about the judge. They said uh, judges like this that should be taken out and shot. They said, you know, why waste a bullet, use a wood chipper, things like that. Which was now, a reference to um, Fargo. Exactly. A reference to the famous scene when uh, someone's being fed into a wood chipper in Fargo. <laughs> now, anyone with even a passing familiarity with the internet in general or political websites in particular understood those comments to be bluster and bravado and the sort of you know, distasteful but common type of rhetoric that goes on online. But someone didn't see it that way and it's speculation as to who started this. But the United States Department of Justice, through the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, for the Southern District of New York, there in Manhattan, sent a federal grand jury subpoena to Reason, demanding all of the information about these commenters. They, of course, were using handles and not their real names, like most commenters on the Internet do. And the Justice Department sent this federal grand jury subpoena to Reason, demanding whatever records they had, the IP addresses, the email addresses, whatever login information they had, so they could identify these people who were making these comments. And the pretense of the grand jury subpoena was that these people were engaged in interstate threats. Which by its definition, I mean, any threat over the Internet will be an interstate threat, no? Exactly, and that's why the feds have fairly wide power to investigate things done online. What happened roughly next was that somebody got a hold of the subpoena and sent it to me and asked me to comment about it. Now, I write about uh, federal criminal justice and I write about free speech issues, so this was sort of in my wheelhouse. And I called the assistant U.S. attorney who issued the grand jury subpoena to try to get a comment. And honestly, I thought, well, if they have some sort of secret information showing that there's a real threat here – uh, then I want to know and before I write about it, and I might not write about it. But there wasn't any such thing. They couldn't articulate any such thing, and what I got back instead was pushback along the lines of, well, there's a gag order, you shouldn't have gotten this, I'm going to have to investigate how you got it, kind of 
thinly veiled threats. Right. And as it turned out, uh, the Justice Department did get a gag order on Reason Magazine. So let me stop you there, just for our audiences. Explain what – because you actually – but just for background, part of your practice is – you know, federal criminal law. Um, explain what a gag order is and, and why one would be issued. Sure. Generally, federal grand jury subpoenas are not secret. They're not. They're secret with respect to the government. The government's not supposed to go blabbing about them. But if you receive one, you're generally not barred from talking about it. There are a few areas in the law where the government can seek an order from a federal judge saying that you, recipient of the subpoena, may not disclose it. Mostly that's in cases of banking. Occasionally it's in cases involving terrorism. But there's also this weird provision that lets the government seek such a gag when what they're seeking is information from online providers like Gmail or Mm -hmm. like that. And as it turned out, what they did here was go to a magistrate judge and say, you know, we're seeking this information. It's online information. And then they said extremely generically, and we're worried it will be disclosed and it's under the statute, so give us a gag order. And the judge signed off on it, or or I would characterize it more, rubber stamped it. And as a result, what they wound up with was – Reason Magazine, a a news organization that writes about abuses of government power and free speech and the criminal justice system, being told that they can't talk about a grand jury subpoena for anonymous commenter information for 180 days. And that was a rather extreme situation, I think. 180 days. Wow, that's that's quite extensive. Now, how common is or is it to, to issue such a gag order in these cases? Well, I almost have to speculate to answer that, Ben. That's true. Because you would nature. It's, it's the, uh, the Donald Rumsfeld known unknown and you know, unknown unknown unknown. Exactly. As a, a federal prosecutor, I encountered very few of them. As a federal criminal defense attorney, I've encountered very few of them. But we don't really know how often uh, prosecutors like this one get a judge to rubber stamp such a request true. and the recipients just sort of knuckle under without any sort of resistance and without ever mentioning it even after it expires. But it's I, mean, I received one once and it made sense because it basically was you, you, uh, it was a third party subpoena for for a client. They were investigating one of their clients. Um, was, it was a, a state attorney general. And so I guess it made sense not to tip off your, your client that they're being investigated. Um, you know, and so I, you know, to an extent that that seemed limited and reasonable. But here we're talking about a First Amendment case. We are. We're talking about a situation where by no stretch of this imagination were these comments what you would call true threats, the type of comments that are outside the protection of the First Amendment and subject to prosecution. They were – no one could objectively take them seriously uh, as actual threats, as intent to do harm. And there was no evidence at all that that the the speakers meant them that way. Unfortunately, the state of the law seems to be that the government can use coercive measures like a grand jury subpoena to investigate comments even when it's perfectly clear that they're not true threats, even when it's perfectly clear that they're mere rhetoric. Is is there any evidence that there were 
other than what was on reason, that there uh, threats had been made to the judge. So maybe that would justify them having a heightened sensitivity. Well, sure. There were threats made to the judge from other places, uh, from places that on TV they call the dark web uh, to sound scary. And (laughs) maybe some of those threats were closer to the line. Uh, We don't know. But this subpoena didn't have anything in it that would connect these commenters to other threats. Application for the gag order didn't articulate any facts connecting these commenters to any other threats. And in the course of making comments about this, the government's never articulated any such connection. It's pure speculation. All you have is people trash talking a judge who made an unpopular decision, an unpopular, incredibly harsh criminal justice decision. And it's frankly chilling no matter how you spin it. Even if you say, well, they had a heightened concern, that just means that whenever some idiot out there makes a scary threat about a public figure, then everyone who uses any type of intemperate rhetoric can be investigated. Right. And, and, that, and that shouldn't be the law. Now, so you broke a story, and I'll just cite an excerpt. Um, on June 8th, you reported that on Popat that DOJ is targeting com, quote, a leading libertarian website whose clever writing is eclipsed only by the blowhard stupidity of its com- commenting peanut gallery. Um, and then you asked, why is the government using its vast power to identify these obnoxious asshats and not the other tens of thousands who plague the Internet? Um, because these twerps not mouthed off about a judge. And that broke the story. Well, it seemed to, yes. And that was purely by virtue of this person choosing to leak the subpoena to me. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who also could have broken it. But um, I was uh, you know, I was happy to get it. I was happy not at what was happening but at the opportunity to bring to people's attention how the government can abuse its grand jury power. And I just highlight the fact that you broke the story because there's often debate of whether or not you know bloggers are you know properly considered journalists, and and so here's a you know, a professional lawyer who has a blog um, breaking a major legal story, and so for courts that sometimes say, well, we won't we won't credential like the Supreme Court, which won't even credential SCOTUS blog. This this is a, an instructive lesson as to whether or not they, they truly are journalists. Well, you know, fortunately, Bennett, I think that the law is very firmly in favor of you know, me getting the same sort of legal protections under the First Amendment that any respected, credentialed journalist does. Uh, whether or not the public perception follows the law uh, and whether or not institutions are going to let me sit next to the journalists, that may lag behind. But I'm more concerned uh, that the law has, for the most part, said that I get the first le- the same legal protections as anyone else when I'm writing about this. And it is good, I think, that any schmo like me uh, can write about this, and it's what makes it harder for them to get away with it, I think. And so what was the Justice Department response? Uh, well, you know, my intention in calling the assistant U.S. attorney was in part to satisfy myself that I wasn't putting anyone at risk, that they didn't have any sort of 
special information about these people, but also to see if I could provoke them into making any stupid admissions or comments, <laughs> um, which is a large part of the did. practice of a criminal defense attorney, uh, provoking the prosecutor into making saying things they shouldn't say. Um, and I got what I was looking for in the sense that I got them – I got the prosecutor to say, well, how can we ever know if there's a true threat unless we investigate, which is pretty much an admission that if they don't like a comet, they can look into it whether or not there's any facial details that make it seem like a real threat. And I also got the threat pushback, uh, basically saying, well, we're going to have to investigate this in you to see how you got this, which I took as an attempt to deter me uh, from writing about it, uh, which attempt was unsuccessful. So, you know – I, again, it's um, speculative as to how they got their teeth into it. Based on 20 years of working in the system, I would guess that a judge's law clerk or an investigator or something saw it, got upset about it, and uh, wound up draw, you know, making a call uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And, you know, if a federal judge's chambers call you, you take the call. Um, but the point of that is that – Bennett, if someone writes intemperate things on the internet about you or about me, as they do all the time. Which is true. <laughs> right. No one's going to send a grand jury subpoena over it. Uh, there's no chance that the government is going to investigate it, even if it's just as intemperate as these wood chipper comments. The people who are going to get targeted by a federal grand jury subpoena are people who talk about people in power, people with influence, people like a federal judge or like a chief federal prosecutor, or like a congressman. You know, one of the lead cases out there about this very subject, about the government's ability to use federal grand jury subpoenas to track down trash talkers, involved a presidential candidate. In the 2012 race, Bachman, who was running, I, I've blanked right. on her first Michelle name. Bachman. Michelle Bachman. Bachman, thank you. Yeah. And there was someone on Twitter who was clearly a character, you know, meant to say intemperate things, outrageous things for laughs, who said something uh, obnoxious and offensive about her, basically, that she deserved to have terrible things happen to her with a Vietnam-era machete. It was so clearly hyperbole and bluster. But when the Department of Justice issued a grand jury subpoena to Twitter to uncover that person's identity – federal judge in D.C. said basically, well, yeah, it's clearly not a true threat. If they indicted this person, the indictment would be dismissed. They couldn't make a case based on this, but eh, they get to investigate. So really, um, despite the First Amendment implications of this sort of thing, and despite the established First Amendment protection for anonymous speech, you know, if, if we say things about the wrong person, even if they're clearly not threats, we can be targeted by the mechanism of the federal criminal justice system. So when would a threat be appropriate for investigation? So take the machete example. What more would you think should have been in, would have had to have been in there to merit um, a reasonable inquiry? I think that there has to be some rational basis to think that this could be a true threat. That is, there has to be some arguable basis that a reasonable person looking at this in its context would see this as an expression of intent to do harm. Um, and that simply wasn't there. I think that the government should be ex exercising some sort of prosecutorial discretion 
in using tools like a grand jury subpoena. You know, it's one thing uh, when you've got a known person making a comment about the president or a judge just to have someone show up and knock on their door and say, hey, can we ask you some questions? But when you're using a legal mechanism, legal power to uncover someone's anonymity, that's, that's a different animal, I think. And in this reason case, like in the Michelle Bachman case, no rational person could look at those and think that there was any true threat. Um, one person who won't be anonymous this morning is our sponsors, and we're going to take a short break for them. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more with Popat's Ken White on Cyberlaw Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Finding links to improve your rankings in the search engines is time-consuming and frustrating for many of us. The Hoth is the go-to company to help lighten your link-building load. Their white-label SEO was made specifically for agencies, in-house SEOs, and affiliates. The Hoth also offers high-quality custom local citation building to improve search rankings in Google's Maps and localized results, providing fulfillment for some of the largest SEO companies in the world. The Hoth offers link and citation building services you can trust. Get $20 in link building or citation building credits free by going to thehoth.com slash radio, T-H-E-H-O-T-H dot com slash radio. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know they're SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namecom puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and flock to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking to Ken Wayne at Popat. Um, and part of this discussion came about because I ran into Matt Welch um, from Reason Magazine at 
annual Los Angeles Press Club Awards, um, formerly known as the Southern California um, Journalism Awards, just a couple weeks ago. And actually, I want to give a shout out to Matt because he actually won um, an award that night. Commentary, magazine commentary for his work on When the Left Turned Against Free Speech, Rand Paul, Racism, and Prison, Kiss Your Financial Privacy Goodbye. Um, in addition, that night, interestingly enough, um, in the online commentary category, um, which actually I was up in, Reason won that category as well for actually um, a piece on regulating hate hate speech. Jesse Walker won um, regul- for regulating hate speech won't stop hateful crimes. So it was a good night for Reason. You talked to Reason, and um, obviously they couldn't talk about um, the the case since they were under the gag order. What has the response been now that this has been reported? Well, uh, Reason was very generous in giving me time once the uh, gag order was lifted and they let me talk to them. And and they've been expressing themselves a lot about not only the circumstances of how it happened, but how it felt to be journalists who are focused on a particular area, to have a story right in the center of what your concerns are and have a judge tell you you can't report on it. And, uh, you know, I can only imagine how maddening it was for people who were in that profession to, to have that happen. But, you know, they also talked, I think, about something that's important for people who get such gag orders. They talked about how isolating it was uh, because, you know, one of the things you want in a situation like this is to consult with colleagues. Has this happened to you? How did you handle it? Uh, you know, what are my rights? And suddenly you're thrown into this situation where you can only talk to your lawyer. You can't talk to your friends or family or colleagues. You can't get the context to see how other people have handled it. And it's very chilling and isolating, I think. And and so has the is, are they still subject to the gag order? No. Uh, what happened was that about 11 days after I ran the story, they were about to file a motion to lift the gag order. And the prosecutor very belatedly filed something saying, well, now that it's out in the open, we asked the court to lift it. And the court immediately did. So you've got great response from you know, online and print media about you know, breaking the story. Did, did, any, did anyone actually criticize you for it? You know, a few people early on said that I was making too many assumptions, know what evidence that the government might have showing that these were real threats, that the government ought to be able to investigate where, you know, it's not like they're putting someone in jail, that type of thing. And, of course, the normal sort of you belong in a wood chipper comment that you get any time you put yourself out <laughs> on the Internet. Um, but for the most part, that's died down a little bit after, you know, my speculation that there was a gag order uh, turned out to be true. And after they saw really how little the government put forward to justify a gag order. It, it would be really interesting if one of our sponsors was a wood chipper, but um, I'm pretty sure that is not the case today. And, and so going forward, I mean, what, what's to be learned from this? What, you know, if I'm a federal prosecutor, and as you once were, you know, what should I take from this incident? Well, hopefully they'll take that whatever the law permits them to do, 
using their power like this may result in a large amount of public blowback, not just from the you know, established media, but from uh, obnoxious pipsqueaks like me who are willing to write about it. And that, I hope, will change the way they exercise that power somewhat, at least make them a little more reluctant if they're going after a, a magazine or a newspaper or a blog trying to prevent them from writing about things. Because this really blew up in their face. And, you know, everyone from obscure blogs to the New York Post strongly criticize the U.S. Attorney's Office, which they generally don't like. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm hoping it will have some minimal impact. And I'm hoping it will inspire other people to write about this and the next person to get a gag order to find a way to get the word out about it. Now, one thing you know, that comes up in this is the whole, um, as you very well write, the peanut gallery, uh, which <laughs> the blowhard stupidity of the peanut gallery—that's that's a great, great line. But you know, the peanut gallery and, and its prevalence in comments to actually kind of degenerate to this type of speech, and you know, a, a lot of sites are grappling with you know to what extent should we regulate it? Obviously, you know, internally, not government regulation. And Reddit has had that big controversy where they were trying to deal with harassment. You know what? What do you recommend, or if anything, that sites should do about this type of speech? I think sites should exercise their own free speech and free association and decide what kind of culture they want to create. This is a somewhat unpopular view in, in some circles in the First Amendment uh, groups, but I strongly think that if you know reason wants to cultivate a place where there are fewer jerks, then they should do it. Uh, just the same, they wouldn't invite jerks to their living room, to a cocktail party. They don't right. have to invite jerks into their comments. Um, on the other hand, if Reason decides, you know, we're going to have sort of a free-for-all, that's our, that's our vibe, that's our spirit, that's who we want to be, that's fine too. But I, I just don't think that uh, any site should hide behind the idea, well, you have to leave it open to everything. You don't. Uh, you know, at my blog... Um, we ban people who we think uh, are saying the equivalent of the wood chipper stuff that I think really doesn't contribute to anything. And, um, you know, I'll take the, the backlash for that and because that's the type of living room I want to have. And I'm highly in favor of recognizing that publications have free association and free speech rights too. And that's true. I mean, and, and entirely true. Um, it's, but yeah, there is that challenge because there's been a trend about whether or not, for example, to require um, comments. Some sites have required commenters to register using you know a, an email address or some identifier, you know, just as a way to discourage such kind of um, reckless speech, so to speak. Well, it's not only reckless; it's also, you know. There's the stuff that's reckless, there's the stuff that's scary or unpleasant, and then there's just the stuff that wears you down day after day. I mean, the problem with there being no consequences to filling the comments with crap is that pretty soon it gets difficult to read the valuable comments uh, because they're so overwhelmed by the crap. So, you know, I, I, I believe in free speech and therefore I believe in free speech by everybody. And I don't think that free speech means that you know, I have a right to come on to your radio show. I'm uh, very grateful to do so. But if you decide that I'm a jerk and you don't want me on, that's not a violation of my rights. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, that the, to the extent that it creates this 
almost a meme-like view that the internet is still the wild, wild west. I actually had a judge recite that to me, um, saying, well, that's what the internet, isn't that what the internet is about, abusing people online? And I said, I, I kind of don't think that's what the law intends. But at the same time, you know, the, the motion that was at issue um, you know, didn't really merit judicial um, digital action. But you know, to the extent that even that that view is filtering into the courts, I find troubling. Well, you know, I think it is the wild, wild west uh, to some extent because the legal restrictions on what you can say uh, are very limited. So the marshal sure. doesn't get to punish you for a lot of the stuff. But hey, if you're Al Swearingen from Deadwood running the gym, you're perfectly free to toss people out on their ass if they don't like you don't like the way they're acting there. And to that extent, the wild, wild west can be policed. Now, one other area you've been very active in lately, and it's also an area that's generated a lot of controversy, is ICANN's decision when you register a site, you have to provide certain information, and that is published um, in directories like in GoDaddy or wherever it is that you register, um, which allows you people to look you up um, and find out who's responsible for the site. And there's often, I believe, a technical contact and an administrative contact. And at the same time, a lot of times these have been either not not provided at all. There's some who is, as I see, where there's no information. There's also a lot of times where, you know, fake or fraudulent information. And then the third category is the prevalent use of, um, you know, what's called proxy, who is where it's a, a service um, that would then merely forward any communications, but doesn't really provide any information as to who's behind the website. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the ICANN um, changes that have been being discussed? Well, sure. Uh, ICANN suggested some changes that would dramatically limit the ability of people to hide their identity when they run a blog. In other words, it would make it easier... Uh, if if I were still anonymous on Popat, which I haven't been for five years or so, it would be easier for them to look up and figure out who the guy really is who runs Popat. Right. And on the one hand, there's some benefit to that. Uh, you do have a lot of, uh, you know, fly-by-night businesses and things out there. You know, that would help in reducing fraud. On the other hand, it would really make it much easier to harass people based on their viewpoints. And there really are a lot of uh, deal-breakingly frightening and creepy people out there whose uh, self-esteem is bruised when other people have different opinions and who like to respond to those different opinions with threats and streams of abuse and that sort of thing. And I think a lot of bloggers have a perfectly good reason to want to be anonymous, uh, to not want people you know, calling their work and complaining about what they write or calling their family and swearing at them are all the things that happen to people, uh, arguably particularly to women who write on the internet. And I think they're balancing it wrong to the extent they're making it impossible. I mean, I could see making it more of a requirement for commercial sites, uh, for sites that sell a service or product um, to uh, have a, a real person listed. But for expressive sites, I don't really see a need or a justice behind making it difficult to be anonymous. I think that the ability to use proxies should be robust uh, so that people are more free to speak their mind without worrying about uh, whether it's the government knocking on their door or whether it's uh, people threatening them because they don't like their expression. 
And but I thought at one point, maybe it was one of the drafts I saw that it was the requirement was limited to commercial sites. Well, it wasn't, and for a while, what they were using to define commercial sites was broad enough so that if you were a blogger who had, you know, Google Ads, that might be um, that might be commercial. But the one that most people um, were complaining about and protesting over did involve really broad enough uh, rules so that any blogger or website runner would be concerned. And and so the and. You, your position is: Have you, along with a number of others, have expressed a view to ICANN that this is an endangerment of their privacy, as well as putting them at risk? There's actually one uh, open letter to ICANN on this that has, I, I forget the number, but you know, roughly fifty um, figures in, in the internet uh, signing on to this and objecting um, based on privacy. W- were you guys a signatory to that? Uh, I, you know, I promoted it, I tweeted it, I sent it around, I wasn't asked to sign it, but I, I did support it. You know, I, I honestly, I, I think that this is, the driving force behind this uh, are content providers, the record industry, the music industry, uh, the movie industry, wanting to make it easier to uh, sue people for copyright infringement. And while I think that copyright infringement should be policed, I don't tend to agree with the RIA and other entities that basically that should be the overriding principle of determining everything that happens on the internet. Right. And it's not, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of the times that I've looked at who is, and sometimes it's also, it's not in that context, but it's often in the context of, you know, some kind of fraudulent activity going on on that site and trying to figure out who's responsible. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, I think, that's the reason some people do it. On the other hand, uh, I do think that it's a practice of people to look up who has if they don't like uh, just the content, if they disagree with it. And oh, I, I, I agree. I mean, I had um, I had a, a, a site that was controversial in the during the Bush years, and yeah, I got I got hate mail from all over the world. You know, but I didn't hide who I was because that was part of the, the reason, part of the, the kind of the. The the way the site was approached was that we have, I'm making a stand and this is me and you know I'll defend my opinion. Right, and I'm fine with that. Of course, Bennett, when the time you made that decision, you were probably established and independent enough to get away with it. Um, you know, there are people out there who talk about what it's say. To give me an example. What is it like to work at Disneyland? Well, from every report I've ever heard, it sucks. <laughs> but uh, if I were working there, I probably wouldn't feel comfortable writing about it unless I had secure anonymity. Uh, so, you know, I, I have my name in the door at the law firm. I can write what I want without too many fear of consequences. But, you know, the dude who works inside some big company, uh, it's a low-level employee, they do have to worry about consequences. True, true. So um – in, in term, you mentioned you do have your name on the door um, of your company, and we really haven't talked about that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and your firm? Sure. Uh, I work for a firm called Brown, White, and Osborne in Los Angeles. Uh, we just turned 10 years old. And we do what we want is what I tell people, but what we want is mostly 
criminal defense, both federal and state, and uh, litigation, uh, with me trying to focus on First Amendment issues and uh, complex business litigation. And, uh, you know, I've gotten some interesting cases as a result of blogging on areas, which my partners appreciate on the day when people aren't calling them to scream about uh, what a terrible person I am. So uh, it's all for the best. Let's, let's go back to that. How often does that happen? Now and then. You know, there was a string of uh, uh, crazy faxes that my managing partner got when I was giving pro bono help to somebody. Uh, now and then we get people uh, calling the receptionist and asking to talk to me and swearing. And there's the odd hang-up call or other things. You know, it's, it's all part of the fun. Uh, but it makes me appreciate more why, you know, if I were an associate at a law firm, I sure wouldn't be doing this under my right. name. Right. Because obviously, yeah. That's one way to to impress a partner is to have people yelling and screaming and, and using uh, wor- words that they may not even be familiar with. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, if you're a partner in a law firm, you can get away with coining a phrase like snort my taint and no one's going to say anything. But if you're a junior associate, you know, you might hear about that at performance review. So um, we mentioned at the top of the show that you you, you had the, the, the colorful um, case involving funny junk. Um, how did that wrap up in terms of your – because at one point you were threatened um, with a lawsuit, weren't you? I Kind of marginally, yes. I, I was subpoenaed in a case. Uh, what happened was that in the wake of the whole funny jug tumult, someone started up a satirical website about Charles Carrion, the, the attorney who was the threatener. And Carrion threatened that person repeatedly with lawsuits, and eventually, with the help of Public Citizen, uh, that blogger sued for declaratory relief for a federal court order saying, I'm allowed to do this, and it's not a violation of your rights. And in the course of that, uh, the web host uh, just gave up the guy's name, uh, which was quite disturbing and one of the indications of why you need vigorous anonymity protections uh, because then it just made it easier for Carrion to threaten this guy and say basically, you know, the statute of limitations is three years. You could get a knock on your door anytime. I'm going to, you know, I can do this for cheap. Uh, and this guy was very lucky that he had public citizen to go to bat for him and to get uh, a judgment saying basically you're allowed to say satirical things about Charles Carrion. And um, we're going to take a break in a minute, but be- before we do, um, why don't you tell us a, a, a little bit about Pope Hat and, uh, and how people can get, get in touch with you? Well, sure. Uh, the website is popehat.com, and you can reach me at ken at popehat.com. I mostly focus on the legal system, particularly free speech and criminal justice issues, and my co-bloggers focus on games and art and music and all sorts of things. Uh, and we're always happy to hear story tips about free speech issues and criminal justice issues. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been always been a pleasure, and we, I'm a big fan of your blog. You guys do great work, um, but it's it's always been fun having you. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have some news updates. But thanks again. We really appreciate it. Thank you, it. Bennett. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief test for our sponsors. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, 
to get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals. Personal, professional, PPC services. PPCprofessionals.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. We're back, and I want to thank Ken again. It's always a pleasure to have him. Uh, he does a great job with that blog, and that was a very important story to break. And, you know, it's there is sometimes this kind of um, a kind of meaningless debate, really, about whether or not bloggers are journalists. And, uh, you know, for example, SCOTUS blog, one of the leading blogs, if not the leading blog on the Supreme Court, actually was denied credentials um, by the Supreme Court. Even though anyone who's writing on the Supreme Court goes to SCOTUS blog for information. So, uh, it, it's, it's, it's strange that this distinction about whether or not bloggers or, or journalists comes up because clearly they are. You look at some of the, the blogs that have broken major stories. Um, Ken, Ken is just one at Popat, but you know, it's happened before. Um, but speaking of blogs and breaking stories, uh, today is the 65th birthday of, uh, someone whose um, original name you may not know, or birth name, I should say, and that is Ariana Stasinopoulou, um, now known as Ariana Huffington, um, because she, after marrying Michael Huffington. And uh, she was born in Athens on this day in 1950. Uh, she actually is, for those who haven't met her, is quite a, a remarkable person, force of nature. Um, she was in, um, went to Cambridge, and um, was one of the, the first female president of a college there where they, they elect um, presidents, you know, student body presidents for each of the, the colleges that they're in. And, um, and obviously has had quite a remarkable career, um, as we've seen with Huffington Post, which has become a major online force. Um, people, I think Larry King, when she first mentioned the idea of Huffington, discouraged it. And, uh, and you just look at what has happened. Um, it has become... Um, uh, probably one of the most powerful online news sources there is. Um, she's done quite a great job. So happy birthday, Ariana. Um, it's been a pleasure working with you. Um, in addition, there's another birthday today and someone who's actually been on our show several times. And that's the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, they turned 25 
And um, one thing, they will be having a, actually a, a big party um, tomorrow, I believe. Go to their website at EFF.org um, to see it. They're having like a little mini conference and then um, celebration thereafter. Um, they've done quite a lot over the years in terms, and you look at what they've accomplished. You know, it really is an incredible record, and um, they deserve they deserve a lot of credit um, for the work they've done. You know, from everything from you're know, working on uh, the NSA to um, privacy to net neutrality, um, opposing SOPA. I mean, they have been a major force in the online debate, and you may not always agree with them. But you have to give them credit for the presence they've had, the talented people they brought, um, and um, and their effectiveness. Um, they've, they've actually done great work. We've had a number of their people on our show um, so over the years, and they've been a very good friend of the show. So I want to give them a very hearty um, congratulations on the 25 years of a job very well done. So uh, I hope you have a great celebration tomorrow in San Francisco. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with them, definitely check them out at EFF.org. So um, other news. It was, last week was just a very interesting week online. Uh, and as watching things progress, <laughs> first of all, was the the, the kind of humorous um, evol- devolution, I should say, of the battle over the, between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks over DeAndre Jordan and how that played out in social media. Um, just the tweets of the various uh, parties and, you know, from both camps and, uh, and then all the memes that followed on social media were quite hysterical. Um, for those unfamiliar, DeAndre Jordan is like the center for the Los Angeles Clippers and one of the, the major free agents of this um, summer for the National Basketball Association. And he signed a, I believe it was a you know, huge mega $20 million um, something to that effect contract with the Dallas Mavericks, which are owned by Mark Cuban. Under the NBA rules, you can't finalize a contract until uh, there's a moratorium until I think it was the July 9th or July 10th. And then at that point, you know, you can, you can sign contracts where people, the players can commit, um, but the contract can't be signed until that date. And so this is on the eve of the, the signing period moratorium. Um, actually, the Los Angeles Clippers coach, owner, and many of the key players all flew to Houston where, where DeAndre lived and um, more or less talked him out of signing with the other team and deciding to renege and and instead stay with the Clippers. And it was just really interesting, some of the, the funny things that were coming out. Um, all the players were using emojis, um, and the tweets were quite humorous. Um, the best was a, a Blake Griffith tweet, which showed uh, a door, a chair at the door trying to block anyone from coming in, um, which cause supposedly... <coughs> Um, Mark Cuban was trying to get a hold of Jordan in order to talk him out of um, in changing his mind. And then we have the whole battle over Reddit. Um, it was a, a huge controversy in Reddit when Forum Managers was fired, which actually created uh, almost a revolt within Reddit. And that ultimately led to um, Ellen Powell's resignation as CEO. There was a large um, petition within the Reddit community to actually dump Powell over it, even though the decision to fire the person was not her choice. So 
that was going on. Um, and then you had all the other things that have been going on online. Um, major stories also offline with, with what was going on in Greece and then today with Iran. Um, so it really was quite an interesting week. I think the uh, the the Reddit issue is, is going to be something we, we may take a look at uh, because it, the whole issue of Reddit is a report today that Reddit basically seems at odds with its community. Um, and, you know, it doesn't want the kind of um, beer-fisted discussion that you know, that seems to have sometimes, or do they want a more uh, regulated environment? And, you know, as Ken and I were talking about, you know, do it, they get to choose what environment they want, and they may not want the current environment they have. And their user base may not be comfortable with that. So that's going to be a big challenge. But I want to talk about what we have coming up on the show. And next week, um, we have a very important guest um, from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We're going to be talking um, with them about the very controversial Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, um, the TPP um, trade agreement, which, as um, for those unfamiliar, is a multilateral agreement uh, with all the major Asian, um, or I should say Pacific countries, um, because it includes those on this side of the Pacific, which would be Canada, the United States, and Latin America. And it has been usually controversial because many of its terms are secret. Uh, There are some questions about whether it it, it reverses rights that are currently exist under copyright law. Uh, a lot of questions about concerns over pharmaceutical provisions in it, and it, it is a become a lightning rod, in, you know, here in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and so, President Obama just won authority to have to finalize this deal and have it um, submitted to Congress on a fast track basis, where they can either just um, vote it up or down. They can't amendment. Amend it, and so um, we're going to have a discussion with the U.S. Chamber, who's a major supporter of the um, the treaty, um, next week. So definitely tune in. And as usual, if you need information about um, today's show, check out our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress. Um, let us know what you think. Um, we're on Twitter at cyberlawradio, and as also check us out at the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net, um, and and see what services we can offer. Um, we are definitely. You know, one of the major players in internet law. So just check us out. But that's all we have for this week. I want to thank Ken and Popat and their community um, for their great support of the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. So, But join us next week. We'll be talking about the TPP with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce right here on webmasterradio.fm. And so this is Bennett Kelly with Cyberlawn Business Report saying see you next week. Have a great week. And until then, um, we'll be right here at the same channel on webmasterradio.fm. Download our mobile app and check us out on the web. Uh, Again, cyberlawradio.com. All the best to you. This is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. This has been a presentation of webmasterradio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program 
are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.